Hello, and welcome back to the HSAC podcast. For those of you that don't know, we are the Harvard College Sports Analytics Collective, a group of undergraduate students dedicated to the quantitative and statistical analysis of sports. We break down the numbers and advanced metrics behind all your favorite teams and players, trying to bring useful insights to the game. I am David Arco, a freshman at Harvard College, and today I am lucky to be joined by two great guests and fellow HSAC members, Buddy Scott and Chris Chang. On this episode, we will be recapping the NBA regular season, discussing how analytics have changed the game, and making our predictions for the playoffs. Buddy is the current co-president of HSAC and is a junior studying economics and government and is a setter on the Harvard men's volleyball team. He is an NBA salary cap junkie and is currently interning with the NBA Players Association as a basketball-related income intern. You can follow him on Twitter at BuddyScottNBA for all salary cap-related information and more. Chris is also a co-president of HSAC. He's a sophomore studying computer science and economics. He's written an article about predicting NBA three-point shooting from college player performance. You can check out Chris's article on our website at harvardsportsanalysis.org. So the 2020 to 2021 NBA season was interesting and it saw many new developments. The season began in late December with the 2020 finals wrapping up in the bubble in mid-October due to obviously COVID-19 pausing the NBA season. This season, players had much less rest than usual, especially those who made deep runs into the playoffs. The 2020 to 2021 NBA season was shortened from the usual 82 to 72 games, and the NBA modified last year's play-in tournament for the opening round of the playoffs, which is coming up early this week, and we're going to discuss that later on this episode. But this season, lots of familiar teams succeeded, like you know the Los Angeles Clippers, the Denver Nuggets in the West, the Milwaukee Bucks, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the Miami Heat in the East. There were some disappointments that could be due to other factors like injuries. We're going to discuss this later with the Los Angeles Lakers, Boston Celtics, and also some greatly improved teams like the Utah Jazz, the Phoenix Suns, the Brooklyn Nets, and the New York Knicks. So this all sets the stage for an exciting playoffs, a new play-in tournament with familiar faces, newcomers, and some teams with some big stars and loaded rosters. So having, you know, just finished a regular season, as of recording this podcast, there are actually two games left, so not all the matchups are solidified, but we're pretty much near the end. But I'd be interested to hear from you, Buddy and Chris, what two or three teams improved the most this season? Not necessarily something, you know, like the Clippers or Bucks, who we knew were going to be good and were really good last year. But what's a team or two that really overperformed expectations this year? Yeah, for me, it kind of has to be the Knicks. They did not have a great year last year, and I don't think there were high expectations, at least from like outsiders going into this year. And they're, I think, 39 and 31. They're going to make the playoffs. And just diving into the stats a little bit, one of the big improvements they've made is, first of all, their five starters have all played 60-plus games, but also they're shooting a lot better from three. I mean, last year, Reggie Bullock shot 33%. Now he's shooting 41%. RJ Barrett has improved from 32 to 39%. And Julius Randle, who no one thought of as a three-point shooter, he was 28% last year. He's up to 42% on like six threes a game. So this Knicks lineup that you would say going into the season probably would have like the worst spacing in the league. They have like six or seven rotation players shooting like 40% from three, which is just great. And like per cleaning the glass, they're fourth in defense. And 
let's see who they get in the first round. If it's Milwaukee, I definitely wouldn't favor them. But if they're playing Atlanta, I think they're 3-0 against the Hawks this year. So the Knicks, who no one really had expectations for, could legitimately win a playoff series. Took my thunder, but yeah, I was also going to say the Knicks. As a Knicks fan myself, I think you hit on a lot of the key points. Actually, I wrote an article about this. The Knicks had an eight-game winning streak, I think, about two weeks ago. And I wrote an article kind of about like the reasons for their success. And you hit on the key points. Defense, the great improvement of you know Julius Randle on all aspects of his game, scoring. He's now being more of a ball handler. He's bringing the ball up the court a lot. His three-point percentage, you said, vastly improved. And also, I think the Knicks have a lot of veteran role players, and that's kind of shown that there's still a place for these guys in the NBA. The Knicks don't really have, like, Julius Randle has kind of emerged into a star, but they don't have, like, your traditional, you know, big star. But they do have these really solid role players. They got Derrick Rose, Reggie Bullock, Alec Burks, Todd Gibson. There was recently a 530 article that I read about how all these players are really outperforming their contracts and showing that there still is a place in the league for these veteran role players. And the Knicks have shown that. And then also, of course, Tom Thibodeau, he'll probably win coach of the year. He's a great coach, really defensive focus. And also he does play his guys a lot of minutes. Julius Randle, I think, is leading the league in minutes, but it's been working. So hopefully they'll be fresh enough heading into the playoffs. But yeah, for me, uh, Knicks, definitely the most surprising team. I mean, the other thing that the Knicks obviously is their defense has been great this year. And I remember in the beginning of the year, there's a lot of talk about, oh, can they really keep this up? Because they had one of the highest defensive ratings for the first bit of the season. And there's a lot of speculation whether it was just kind of a fluke or they'd be able to keep that up. Yeah, so I've been really impressed by the Knicks as well. So that is one of the teams I had written down. And then the other team that I've been very impressed by is the Phoenix Suns. Obviously, last season, they had that big bubble run um, with Devin Booker at the end. Obviously, they didn't even make it to the playoffs, I don't think. And then this year, they have Chris Paul, and now they have the second best win percentage in the league right now. I know we're going to talk about MVP race later, but I think there's a, a case for Chris Paul there. Yeah, it's been really impressive what Chris Paul has brought to the team and like how well they're playing. So I'm excited to see what they can do in the playoffs. The other team that is kind of in a similar situation to the Suns is the Jazz, who I wanted to bring up, who, you know, they've kind of been in like the four to six seed range for like four years now. Um, So it's not as monumental of a jump as the Suns who haven't made the playoffs in a decade. But I mean, the Jazz have the best record in, in the league. And I mean, one thing that they've really just stylistically changed is they're shooting more threes than any other team. And they're making more threes than any other team. They're making nearly 17 a game. And one thing I've noticed is so Derek favors didn't play for them last year, but in like the eight years prior, he had played for them and him and Gobert had always started together in the 18, 19 season. They played 739 minutes together and they started pretty much every game together that they were both healthy this year favors is the clear backup. And Favors and Gobert have played only 20 minutes together. So they have decided that they're only going to play one of those two and surround them with four really good shooters. And I think that change has enabled them to really make the leap and they're probably going to be the one seed and we'll see how far they can go in the playoffs. But yes, Suns and Jazz, I don't think anyone expected those to be the first and second seeds in the West this year. Yeah, definitely. And I think we kind of, so the teams, what I'm getting is we said the Knicks, we have the Suns, and the Jazz. And obviously those are improved teams, but they do have star players, but I wouldn't say they have any top 10 players in the league, any of those teams. 
And I just checked 538 for like the title odds and the Jazz are, have 19%. They're the third highest behind the Clippers and the Sixers. But then the Suns are way down at 3%. I think they have the, it looks like the eighth highest title odds. And then the Knicks are 538 just gives them less. Anyway, I think this is more of an interesting discussion about the importance of regular season basketball. And I think over time, it's becoming more and more devalued a little bit with things like load management and and teams putting less of an emphasis on just, you know, just crushing the regular season and more of an emphasis on being in a comfortable seed. We'll kind of get into that later when we start talking about the playoffs a little bit. But I think on the opposite side of this question versus teams that really overperformed, what are some teams that really underperformed this year relative to expectations? I mean, so one team that I've noticed has not been doing well because I'm, I'm a fan of them is the New Orleans Pelicans. There have been like many great expectations for them coming into this season because they have Zion and BI um, in addition to like what people consider a very good, like young surrounding group. I mean, Lonzo Ball and Josh Hart. Before the season started, they still JJ Redick, um, who's obviously a great three-point shooter. They've really struggled this year, even despite having all this like talent and they also had a new coach. I think it's been a little surprising how bad they've been. A lot of it I've noticed is that they really make it a tight game and then just lose it in the fourth quarter a lot. And a lot of people are speculating that that has to do with being a young team and not disciplined defensively. And so they kind of blow a lot of games. And then I think statistically, one of the things that stands out is that their defensive rating is, is terrible. And it's not helped by the fact that their two-star players, Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson, are very poor on the defensive end of things. And so a lot of times it just seems like teams are just destroying them and they just have no way of stopping the opponent, even though they're like very good offensively. Yeah, so I, I also had the Pelicans written down as one of my teams and the defensive struggles are real. I mean, if B.I. and Zion are your three and four, you're matching up against the Lakers, like those two guys who are both negatives defensively would have to guard LeBron and Anthony Davis. If I think it's, you can get by if one of your small forward or power forward isn't great on, on defense, but when both of them are pretty subpar, it's hard, but on the offensive end, it's hard to imagine a team with worse spacing around Zion than what David Griffin assembled this year. And I really just don't understand it. Like a perfect Zion lineup would be, four capable shooters with one kind of player who can protect the rim and playing like Eric Bledsoe and James Johnson and Steven Adams. And they gave him a two-year extension as well. It just, it really doesn't make sense for a team around Zion. Like I don't think that the management has been great there, but the other team I wanted to bring up was the Celtics who I think they've lost four in a row. They're 35 and 35. They're going to be in the play in. And they're like top four players have missed a decent amount of games. Tatum's missed seven. Brown's missed 12. Kemba's missed 27 because he doesn't play in back-to-backs and his knee is really messed up. And Marcus Smart has missed 22. But just taking a step back, and um, I was talking about this with a friend a couple of days ago, just thinking about the talent that they had on their roster just two years ago and the perceived future draft assets they had. I mean... In the 18-19 season, they started Kyrie, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, Marcus Morris, and Horford. And off their bench was Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward, and Jalen Brown. And they still had Baines and Tice. And and just two years later, like 
I was watching the Cavs game. I think it was two nights ago. They were playing like Tremont Waters and Grant Williams. And it's just, it's just a really sad story because I guess they needed those other players to go away. So Brown and Tatum could really take a step forward and be the two main guys. But now, I mean, they were supposed to have these great Grizzlies and Kings picks that were projected to be like top five. And they like tried to not trade them. And they both turned out to be the 14th pick and Langford and Neesmith both haven't been great for them. So it, it's just kind of crazy to think about what people thought of the Celtics two years ago. And then now their performance this year, like they're not one of the five situations that like I'd want to inherit as, as a GM. And like two years ago, I would have said that's like by far the best one. So they've been pretty underwhelming this year. Daryl Morey spoke to our club during the semester and he was kind of talking about this idea of a window to win. And it seems like with the Celtics, their window has is maybe passed. It's to be determined whether Tatum and Brown will continue continue to, you know, become the two stars on the team. But it seems like their window might have passed, which is kind of unfortunate, but we will see. Another team I'd written down was also the Lakers, kind of the opposite of the Celtics in the West. They're both, you know, these legendary franchises. Lakers are going to also be in the playing game, also the seventh seed, but we'll see. I think people really only care, especially with LeBron coming back, how how they will do in the playoffs. So kind of the, the jury's still out on that one. Now moving on, talking from you know the star teams, let's get into some of the, the star players. So for this season, everyone can give their MVPs. I know, buddy, you're a Nuggets fan. You'll probably say Jokic. And yeah, we can talk about, you know, maybe Jokic is probably the unanimous, the clear MVP, but maybe one or two other players that you guys also think have been really good this season. I mean, I also have Jokic as my MVP, largely because Embiid missed so many games. Embiid has been really dominant, and I know he just came back on the last game uh, and is getting back into the swing of things, so he didn't do too well. I mean, there's different ways of looking at MVP, and if, in terms of thinking about like who's going to win the award from like historical reasons, or I do think that Jokic should win, but in terms of affecting winning, I think two other players that have been really impactful this year are Stephen Curry and Chris Paul. For Stephen Curry, I mean, you can look at the Warriors last year. They were just horrific. I mean, they were the worst team in the league by far. And this year they're in the play-in tournament. And that is largely due to Steph Curry. And I know the NBA has a new stat, the, the real plus minus, and Stephen Curry is at the top of that. Obviously he's the scoring leader right now too. And it's not like he has a ton of pieces around him. Obviously Draymond Green is a great defensive player and works very well on the offense side with Steph Curry. And then also Andrew Wiggins has been very good. But outside of that, it's not like they have many star players. And so I think Steph Curry has really contributed a lot to winning. And then in terms of Chris Paul, obviously we talked about this a little before, but the Suns, they didn't even make the playoffs last year. And now they're the second best team or have the second best record in the West and in the NBA overall. Chris Paul has been, I think, really key in terms of, even though it doesn't like light up on the stats, obviously he's averaging 8.9 assists, which is pretty great, but he has impacted winning in, in ways that are not showing up on the stat sheet. In my opinion, it's so clear that Jokic is the answer that I feel weird giving another answer. I mean, he's averaging... 27, 11, and 8, and shooting 57% from the field, 39% from three, and 87% from the free throw line. 
and he's leading the NBA in PER, offensive win shares, win shares, win shares per 48, offensive box plus minus, box plus minus, and value over replacement player, which is almost every key metric besides the one that Chris brought up. It's really hard for me to construct an argument for anyone other than Jokic, but if I had to, I'd also go with Steph Curry. The Warriors are 10 games above 500 with him on the court, and they've only won one of their eight games without him. And he's really high up there in PER. I think he's the highest non-forward or center. And the Warriors are obviously way better with him on the court than without him on the court. But the one thing I wanted to highlight is his true shooting percentage, which is kind of like field goal percentage, but it takes into account like how many threes you take. So his true shooting percentage is 66%, which is 11th in the league, but he's the highest non-big man. And a lot of people, when they look at true shooting percentage, they do it in reference to your usage rate. So if you have a really high usage rate and a really low true shooting percentage, that's really bad. That's like Russell Westbrook. I mean, I, I know he's been good of, of late, but like you don't want players with a low true shooting percentage having high usage. So Curry is 66% true shooting, which is one of the highest in the league on the third highest usage in the league. So he's like the exact player you want shooting as much as he, he does. He probably should even shoot more. I think with Curry, it, it makes me think a little bit about it's not the exact same situation, but Peyton Manning's last year in Indianapolis when he, I think, didn't play a single game. And the Colts went from like one of the best teams in the NFL to like, I think they had the worst record that year. And people kind of jokingly were constructing an MVP narrative. Well, Peyton Manning is clearly the MVP, even though he hasn't played this season because of how bad the Colts have been. And that's a sort of similar argument to like how I mean, the, the Warriors were like the worst team in the league last year when Steph only played five games. And now with him, they're 10 games above 500. And it's hard to think of a player who is as as good of a floor raiser as Steph. It's hard to imagine a player on the Warriors who, if you just plugged him into Steph's position, who would be better than him. So that's my guy if I had to pick someone other than Jokic. But like I said, I think Jokic is pretty clearly the MVP. Yeah, it sounds like we all agree. I mean, I would also say Jokic for me, obviously you said Steph Curry, Julius Randle, we talked about earlier. He'll probably win most improved player very deservingly. And one other person I want to highlight is Rudy Gobert. He'll obviously win defensive player of the year, but it's hard to quantify defense as much as we can quantify offense with these metrics that we have. And that's something that analytics might have to catch up to and see you know, how important is defense. But Rudy Gobert is not only having the best defensive season in the NBA this year, but I think one of the best all time um, some some stats here. His difference between you know points per possession with him on versus off the court is twelve, which is the highest difference since two thousand six. Buddy and Chris talked about these plus minus stats. So in terms of five thirty eight Raptor ESPN defensive plus minus, another plus minus stat, and then a basketball index stat. These are all different kinds of advanced metrics. He has the best season of all time in all these different metrics. This doesn't go back you know, the 70s or the 60s when they didn't have that data, but in terms of most of them are from the 90s onward or early 2000s. So he's having the best defensive season of all time. And yeah, he'll win defensive player of the year, but I think it's kind of a shame for people not to recognize how great of a season this is, not just in this season alone, but in the context of history because it is defense and it's not as interesting you know, as Steph Curry lining it up from three or Jokic dishing you know, his, his nice passes. But I think something should be said for Rudy Gobert's great season. Well, just to kind of 
push back on that a little bit. Like I'm, I'm a big go bear fan. I, I think he deserves some, some sort of recognition, whether it's all NBA, all-star, all of that. But it's hard for me to say that he's like clearly the defensive player of the year, even though the stats may suggest that because he's not matchup proof. There are certain matchups like we, we saw two years in a row in Rocket series where he just got played off the court. If James Harden has the ball and there's four guys standing outside of the three-point line, Rudy Gobert's defensive impact is really minimal. So I think someone more like a Draymond Green or a Ben Simmons type, I think they have a pretty respectable case as well, because I would say they are matchup proof. I mean, Draymond can guard pretty much any player in the league. And I'm not one of those people that focuses on the one or two plays where Gobert gets like cooked when he's guarding like Devin Booker. And is like, Oh, this is, this shouldn't be the defensive player of the year. So I think if I had a vote, I'd probably vote for him. But I also think that it's not as clear cut as MVP for me, because it's hard to say that like, he's the best defensive player by a large margin when there are certain matchups that I wouldn't want him on the floor in. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, defense is definitely the point is defense is harder to quantify. It's harder to separate these players. It's a lot more eye tests and, you know, seeing when Gobert is, is in those mismatches, you can see that. And so, yeah, that is something that is definitely a drawback, I guess, but that's where there is room for analytics in the future. There's a lot of growth in terms of trying to capture defense and so, yeah, we're talking about, you know, how analytics kind of struggles to capture defense, but for the casual fan or average fans, if they want to see how analytics is factoring into the game, when, especially going into the playoffs, how should they look for analytics strategy factoring the game? Are there any specific teams that embody this analytics philosophy? I think a lot of analytics has impacted the game in a like very broad sense that players are just smarter. So there are things that are pretty common knowledge now that are like just the way to play the game or the most optimal way to play the game. And so I can point a few of those out. One would be like, take a lot of corner threes because that is the best shot in the game. It's from three point line, but it's also the closest. So you'll see in the last few years, there's been an increase in the number of like corner threes taken. And then also, I think interesting, I mean, you mentioned defensive analytics. I think one thing to look out for is like, how are teams trying to stop what are considered like good, efficient shots from an analytics perspective? So like, how are teams playing up on three-point line in the playoffs? How are they trying to defend the, the corner three? And then obviously the other like piece of analytics is like, yeah, open layups are great. And so that occurs a lot on like steals and, and like fast breaks. So how are teams like trying to play defensively so that they can get more open layups down the court? I think one interesting thing in the playoffs is you often see a increase in like intensity. And on one hand, that's just because people are playing harder. There are less games. Everything is on the line. So you're just going to play harder, but also from an analytics perspective, defensively, you have the ability to analyze other teams and try to play smarter because you have these these series with other teams that you can sort of use analytics on. I was going to bring up the point about corner threes. Um, I think that's a good proxy for how well teams are using analytics and how good their teams are. I mean, if the three teams that are attempting the most corner threes are Utah, the Clippers and Phoenix, which I think have like three of the four best records in the league. And on the other side of the spectrum, the team's, attempting corner threes with the least frequency are 
Orlando, San Antonio, Washington, and Cleveland, who are all pretty bad or at least mediocre. So that's a pretty clear one. But in terms of like strategy, I think people watching the playoffs, it's really interesting to watch late game situations. And like the two that I would think of is like when to use like the one challenge that a coach has. And also like if you should foul up by three, I think those are two things that always kind of get talked about on, on the broadcast, but because there's, there's no way of really doing like a real time analysis of that. It's hard. And I think personally, more teams should foul when they're up by three. The worst case scenario, if you foul is that you foul a shooter in the act of shooting and he makes the shot and then he makes the free throw and you lose the game and you wouldn't have. And if you just let him shoot the three, it would have been tied and, and you would have gone to overtime. But I mean, I, I think more times than not, it allows the team to only make two points. I think more teams should do it. And it's kind of similar to like this kind of bias that I think is also in baseball and, and football, like a, like a status quo bias, like, oh, it's fourth down. Oh, we're, we're going to punt. We're in the National League. We're going to bat our pitcher ninth. It's just kind of like, oh, you just kind of pencil that in. Like, oh, we're, we're not going to foul. Like we're winning. But I think more teams need to explore that. And I don't really have any good stats of which teams do that because it, it obviously is entirely based on on the scenario, but it seems like something that teams should do more. Yeah, I think you guys hit on you know some of the key strategies, corner threes, getting the free throw line, easy layups. And I think a good way to think about analytics in general, maybe not even just for basketball, but for any sport is maximizing the performance of your players. So if you have a player with a specific skill set that might be limited. It's using all the data that you have analytics to kind of maximize their impact and kind of think of creative ways to use that player to maximize their impact on the game. And I think Buddy brought up an interesting, when he said, you know, the leading three teams and three point shooting percentage are good teams and the bottom three teams are bad teams. And this brings up an interesting question, which is kind of like, is it the chicken or the egg? So yeah, these good teams have better shooters. They have better three point shooters. They're going to take more threes. They're going to make more. And I guess that leads them to being at the top, whereas the, the worst teams are, they're not going to have those guys that are as good three-point shooters. But I think you can still see how analytics factors in, you know, seeing what kind of shots they take, if they really beef up their, their three-point percentage. So there definitely is still, you know, that's kind of, I think, a good way to broadly think about analytics. And then definitely in the playoffs is like prime time for strategy. You have a whole series to game plan. You can kind of see more interesting individual matchups than, than during the regular season. Also related to kind of strategy, this is kind of important heading into the playoffs, but you know, the trade deadline was a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's still interesting to talk about because obviously it has implications for the playoffs. So for each of you, what would you say is this not be the biggest, but the best trade of the season? So I, I wrote down six of them. It's hard to decide which one or two I wanted to focus on, but I tried to think about not only what that player the team has acquired has been like, but what the team gave up to get that player. So the two that I'll highlight are Karis Levert in Indiana. You know, his three-point percentage hasn't been great, but he's averaging like 25, five and five on a Pacers team that kind of has nothing besides them with Brogdon out and Sabonis in and out of, of the lineup. But I mean, they only gave up Victor Oladipo, who I know at the time they didn't realize that he would be having season-ending surgery, but Victor Oladipo is a free agent this year and was commanding a contract probably a lot for more years and for more money than what Karis LeVert is making the next two years after this one. So I think he's at about $18 million each of the next two years. And I, I know that 
Indiana offered Oladipo something like $25 million a year. And I think Levert is a better player. And it's hard to really say that Indiana really like won the trade because at the end of the day, like where's Indiana really going with these kind of like fringe all-star to even worse players than that. But I think in a vacuum, that was a really good trade for the Pacers. The other one I wanted to bring up, Trevor Ariza, who the Heat got for pretty much nothing. They traded Myers Leonard, who is probably never going to play in the league again for a couple of reasons, and a 2027 second round pick for a guy who is now their starting four, who can defend well, who's shooting the three, and he's playing like 30 minutes a game. And Miami has looked really good of of late. And for the price that they got him at, I think Trevor Ariza was one of the best acquisitions of the deadline. Yeah, I think those are all very good trades. And then the two that I had written down was one, the trade for Derrick Rose. Uh, The Knicks got Derrick Rose and they traded Dennis Smith Jr. and a second round pick. Um, Obviously, we talked about the Knicks earlier. I think Derrick Rose has had a, a pretty big role. That was a great trade. And Dennis Smith Jr. hadn't really been that productive on the Knicks. Um, hadn't even really played that many minutes. Um, so I think that was a good trade for the Knicks. And then the other one I wanted to bring up, obviously the elephant in the room is the James Harden trade. I mean, that there's a lot there because, I mean, they traded so many picks, basically mortgaged their entire future to get James Harden. And we'll see if it pays off. But it was just a, an interesting thing. I know we had talked about this earlier um, as a group, not in this podcast, but just the whole direction of the league with the big market teams and the player power and trying to like get together and to dominate and, and create these dynasties. And then at the expense of these other teams who just lose all their star power. Um, so that's something we can talk about more, but those were the two trades that were uh, most interesting to me. Yeah, I'm surprised we almost didn't get to the James Harden trade, but but Chris brought it up. But yeah, I think I think the verdict is still out on that one. Anything less than a finals appearance for the Nets is probably considered a failure on that trade. And I think it's hard to assess trades sometimes because a lot of them involve picks in the future. So right now, we can assess the Nets' success on that trade, whereas the Rockets, it will take time down the road to assess to assess how well that trade was for them based on how they do with the picks. The way you can kind of do that is compare, you know, what is the expected value of those picks in the draft that they got? And then you can kind of compare, but that is also one of the difficulties. And then some other trades, I think that are important going in the playoffs, buddy, for your nuggets, I think Aaron Gordon is going to be important, especially with Jamal, Jamal Murray, not playing to see if they can, you know, make it back to the conference finals. He could be a key part of that. And then also Rondo to the Clippers. So he played that a very instrumental role for the Lakers in their finals last year. And especially with the Clippers missing that point guard depth that they were missing last season, if he can provide that, that could kind of take them to the next level. And they already are a championship team, but he could kind of fill in that missing piece. So we'll see if he can kind of provide that. I think that should wrap up our regular season recap part of the episode. We talked about some surprising teams that outperformed expectations like the Knicks and the Suns some underwhelming teams that underperformed like the Pelicans, Celtics, and Lakers, our regular season MVPs in Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, and Stephen Curry, the state of analytics in basketball, and the best trades of the season. Thanks to Buddy and Chris for joining me today on this episode, 
And remember, you can follow Buddy on his Twitter at BuddyScottNBA and check out Chris's article along with all of our other articles on our website at harvardsportsanalysis.org. Also remember to follow us on Twitter at Harvard underscore sports. Be on the lookout for the second half of this episode in which we preview the NBA play-in tournament and make our predictions for the rest of the playoffs. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoyed. See you on the next episode.